You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Kids and smartphones. Most toddlers know how to play on an iPhone, and it's not long after that they seem to know your password and how to get on YouTube. Parenting today means you have to be on top of what screen time is, both for you and your children. After all, there are so many screens to choose from today, definitely more than when I was a kid. But how does too much screen time affect the family unit? And should we free ourselves from it altogether? Tony Hassan is a journalist and mother of three kids. She's written a new guide for parents and young people called Families in the Digital Age, and she joins us now. Hi, Tony. How are you? G'day to you, Siobhan. How big is the role that screens play in family life today? Well, increasingly significant, uh, as you well know. Um, and it's not really catching up with what the regulators and the experts are suggesting we do. So as you may well know, uh, kids under two, parents are urged to keep them off screens uh, all of the time and that they watch no more than two hours, one hour under five and two hours for recreation older than five. But we know that we're going there compulsively. We're going there in the morning, the afternoon and the night. We're using it as a kind of metronome that's really determining the rhythm or beat of our everyday. And what do you think are the biggest changes if we look at life when we were growing up and then life for kids today what do you think is the biggest difference having so many screens as part of our family life has what does it have today well there are multiple effects one is the sort of privatization of families Uh, individuals withdrawing into their own screens and parents not really being able to unless they're over their shoulder uh, view what they view engage what they engage so there's, uh, I refer to, refer to it as a privatisation of, of members of the family. So a withdrawal from adults earlier, um, a sort of absenteeism in a way because it's there and it's easy, uh, it's titillating and we are using it compulsively. So that's a big thing. I mean, of course, when we grew up, we were also being into entertained and we used the television, but it was much more of a communal experience that replaced the old-fashioned hearth or fire. So we watched it together and we shared that stuff together. We, we talked about it, perhaps, um, in ways that we don't talk about what our kids are, are doing or engaging online. I think that's the key thing. And your children are older now, but how old were they when they started to use the internet or when it came into their lives? Well, you see, this is why I wrote the book. I I was in a state of some panic. Um, I was a media advisor to a federal politician and that required me to be on my phone all the time. My husband is a senior reporter who uh, goes there compulsively for work and brought or does bring his work home. As you know, journalism is now 24-7 occupation. So I felt that we weren't modelling what was right, but because of a spare smartphone in the house, my um, then 12-year-old sort of captured it uh, and under pressure with her peers to have her own screen, suddenly found herself there before I was ready to sort of know what that would mean. And so I think it really took off in my eldest daughter's life 
late primary. And really there was no turning back. Um, and so I went in search of research about uh, how to use it well or what it was doing to young people and began to work out whole-of-family strategies that one began to question what was I modelling to ask, you know, what does it mean to live well? <laughs> and go back to those basic questions about what are we doing as a family? Why do we have kids at all? Um, we have them in order to learn and grow with them. We have them in order to have conversations and to commune together and to learn together what it means to be emotionally resilient for the inevitable challenges of adult life. So, yeah, I, I, um, <laughs> Siobhan, I got rather anxious about it. Fair but enough. You <laughs> can also see that Grace, Gracie, who's just a gorgeous 17-year-old, but suffering anxiety, um, how it made her uh, accelerate work on the self in a way, fueled by images of perfection there, and anxious to belong, as we all do, I just found that it took away some of her spark and her natural curiosity in the world around her. She became worried about how she would present in the real world because she could present in a perfect way or in a way that she could control online. And really, I'm talking about social media above and all things. Um, I mean, that's the focus here because that's been my lived experience, what the smartphone has done in, in the last decade. But do you think, just sorry to interrupt there, Tony, but in, in terms of, um, I know that probably many parents listening now would think, oh, well, social media quite possibly won't be what it is when our kids are older. But um, you do sort of, sort of say in your book that the digital world is here to stay. Um, do you see any benefit in the kind of, in what we're doing with our younger children, in the groundwork mm -hmm. we're laying now, in order for when they do get to the age of 12, 13 and teenagers. Um, oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, just, you know, to step back and say, what, why is this really important? It's to do with our kids' capacities, a capacity to live mentally and physically well. And this is about mental health. And we know that 50% of mental health conditions occur before the age of 14. And certainly um, the onset of mental health illness or depression before the age of 25. But it's it's those really formational years that are the building blocks that prepares them for the subsequent years. So I think prevention and early intervention in the early years is key. And that involves limiting screen time, engaging them in ways that involve whole of body, different modes of being in the world, um, different ways of finding joy, meaning and value. Um, so the screens, of course, have their place but it is a sort of passive engagement and it's often a very competitive environment it's testing what you know it's playing games solo or with others and we want our kids to grow in a way that says you are loved the way you are it's not about winning it's not about looking better or different um, so how to be without being too self-conscious um, and I think it goes to the heart of sort of yeah spiritual wellness um, so time to reflect, time to make an experiment with small risk um, where it's not perfect. I certainly would, would say that there's lots of play online, but it's a mess-free play. Um, and I'm saying get out the textures and the pencils, get out the paints, get them engaging the material world, get them in the dirt um, with the Play-Doh, feeling in a sensory way the world around them. And, um, you know, all that stuff we know to be important, get them out in nature, 
make sure they're getting their vitamin D, <laughs> uh, just pl- playing for its own sake. I think that's a, that's a key message for your audience. And what about um, as they get older, it seems to me that where parents lose influence is when peers step in, which seems to be a natural um, step for children to make, that they turn to their friends more as they get older. Um, What do you do in that instance? Because I know we can do good role modelling ourselves as parents and be aware of our own screen time. We can set up boundaries in our homes about how often we use screens. But once they go to school... Uh, and their mate gets a phone at 10 years of age. How do we deal with that? Good question, Siobhan. Um, so it is about remembering the village. <laughs> I think our lives are busier and mum and dad or our grandparents, their grandparents aren't around. The community we may have relied on isn't there. So make sure you shore up that community that you know your child's uh, friends, families, and you talk about it together because we're all in it together. We're all having the same old challenges. So share that and, and highlight that perhaps you don't want your child to have a smartphone, perhaps only a dumb phone until high school so that there's um, uh, you know shared understanding, shared expectations that will make it easier for you to um, deal with those inevitable peer pressures. Um, that's a big part of it. Um, and, and doing things as a community so joining scouts things that get you out and out of the house and if you're not a camper as we certainly aren't (laughs) you know invite other people to teach you those things go with people who are you know have keener campers and experienced campers do things that take you out of your comfort zone because what what i think screen time does is offer those easy escapes that sit within our comfort zone and we want to encourage kids to experiment, play and take risks. So finding peer support in other parents is, is good for you and ultimately for your kids. Now, my children are still reasonably young. They're five and seven. And something you just said then kind of, it was like a light bulb in my head. Is it in- inevitable now that once kids hit high school, they will have a phone. I mean, obviously, you'll have to buy it for them, but is that just what is is taken for granted now? If you don't have patterns in place, it becomes incredibly challenging by high school, more so because schools are kind of making this compulsory. And so I'm a little annoyed at the pace at which our schools have adopted screens without the evidence to back up this approach. We know that, you know, attention deficit is a problem. The rates of clinical attention difficulties have doubled in a decade. We're not doing well in terms of engaging kids to develop critical um, thinking skills. They certainly know how to get information, but how to use it is another matter, how to develop wisdom as they learn. So I feel like without a clinical trial around this stuff, we've just immersed ourselves in screen culture in high schools an expectation that my kids certainly had a um, their own device, you know, a, a Chromebook, without the evidence. And we know that schools actually are beginning to step back and say, oh dear, what's happening now? Because kids during their lunch break and their uh, downtime are just to- alone together on their screens. They're in the playground in the sun with their screens. Mm. So um, schools are having to say, oh goodness, uh, this sort of pro-social aspects of school, that's why they go as well as to learn stuff. Uh, is being lost and they're thinking about things like um, screen-free days 
And I think it's the teachers who panic more than the kids about that. <laughs> but we, you know, we are sort of saying, hang on a minute, let's catch up and let's catch breath and ask where is the evidence and where are we going? So I, I do say it is that much harder. So develop patterns that work for you and inevitably whatever you've worked hard to do will be weakened in the teen years. <laughs> so, so, you know, make sure as, a, as the primary teachers, as parents are, that you've developed other, other strategies and ways of being in the world. And finally, uh, let's try, I'm going to try and insert some optimism here. Mm. Um, you, as you say, you started this book uh, with a little bit of panic in your heart because mm. of the way it had kind of um, infiltrated and um, become a thing in your family. Since writing this book, has have you made any changes in your own family life that you've seen have made a difference? Yes, engaging um, my phone addicted husband has actually been a big part of it. <laughs> oh, we'll have to do another interview about that. <laughs> because Peter has really struggled to see that there's a problem. So um, that has been actually the, the subversive aim of writing the book, to convince him that while, <laughs> while he has these compulsive um, habits, he's still an adult with the wherewithal to know what matters. And um, what are we modelling? And let's get him doing things differently. So he's been dragged to yoga as well, <laughs> um, which is wonderful. And we've got out the, the inks and the paints and we've you know, done self-portraits and had sort of meditations like that. Um, you know, so I did quit the job with the parliamentarian some years ago and I went to art school. Wow. And I really, I really thought I need to get messy. I need to show that there are other things to do in the world other than sit at a screen all day. So I, I have tried and I'm um, continuing to sort of just encourage the kids to keep up their musical instruments. I think that, that saved my 17-year-old. Her singing, her guitar playing and her piano have been places for her to find um, space to be quiet and to reflect and to be creative. I've mm. taken up drumming as well in the last <laughs> six months. That's fabulous. Uh, because communal music making is such a wonderful gift. Uh, it's brought us together. We're in a talent quest on the weekend. Um, oh, it's brilliant. Playing a, playing a song, the three of us. So, yeah, that's not everybody can do that, but finding what gives you joy as an adult and growing that among your kids, I think, is where you could start. Tony, it's so interesting. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. A pleasure. That's Tony Hassan. She's an award-winning journalist and mum of three. If you're interested in picking up a copy of her book, Families in the Digital Age, check out the links in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Debbie Ning and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. We'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.